As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to Conflicted, a podcast that tells stories of the Islamic past and present to help you make sense of the world today. Hosted by me, Thomas Small, author and filmmaker, and my good friend Eamon Dean, an ex-Al-Qaeda jihadi turned MI6 spy, Conflicted is prepping its fifth season, which is coming to you very soon. And in the meantime, you can sign up to our Conflicted community. Subscribe to Conflicted wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, Henry of Bro History. Uh, we have another episode for you right now, and I had this really, really interesting interview with Mohammed Sahimi. Uh, Mohammed Sahimi is a professor at USC. Um, he's been analyzing Iran's political development and its nuclear program for the past 25 years. He's a chemical engineer. Um, he specializes in the Middle East, obviously, and um, he wrote this really interesting article. It's been pretty hot in the interwebs. Um, it's called uh, Pompeo, Bolton, and Iran's Fake Opposition, uh, published at Loblog. Basically, what we're talking about today is the the different internal opposition groups in Iran and uh, what he considers to be the real opposition to the hardliners in the Iranian government and the fake opposition. Before we get started, I have two favors to ask you. Uh, number one, rate and review the podcast. We're at 78 right now, and we're really trying to get this number to 100. Um, second, subscribe to our YouTube channel. We're trying to grow that as well. We just hit over 100 subscribers, but we're obviously trying to get to that 1,000 mark so we can start monetizing on YouTube. Uh, that's just going to help us keep on doing what we're doing. So uh, do that, and I hope you guys enjoy the show. So on today's show, we have uh, Mohammed Sahimi. Uh, Mohammed is a professor of chemical engineering at USC and an expert on Iranian and U.S. foreign policy. Mohammed, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me in your program. Oh, no problem. Thank you for being here. So you wrote this really insightful article called Pompeo, Bolton, and Iran's Fake Opposition, which highlights the differences between the Iranian groups that are opposed to the hardliners in the Iranian government. And I'll ask you first. What group is the true opposition? Um, and then after we go through that, we can go into what you refer as the fake opposition. Well, the, what I call the true oppositions are the groups that are in Iran and have been trying to move Iran towards uh, a better uh, political system, a better government, a more representative government and democratic elections. Uh, this is actually a sort of a broad coalition. Uh, it consists of uh, the reformists, those who want to reform their state very deeply, uh, and their allies. And their allies in this struggle are uh, a group that are called religious nationalists, for example, that had an important role uh, at the beginning of the Iranian Revolution of 1979. Then we also have secular leftists that are scattered, but they do have a very important presence. We also have labor unions. Uh, there have been uh, 
some strikes and demonstrations in Iran by labor unions. And we also have teachers unions. They also have been very active uh, asking for uh, better pay, better benefits, uh, and so on, and uh, uh, demonstrating and uh, protesting the state of economy. And all of these groups have also been protesting the deep corruption uh, within the uh, establishment. Uh, there, is, there is practically no week going going up, going by, in which some new revelation from some major uh, corruption uh, is not uh, is not made. So this is what I call the uh, you know the true opposition in Iran. They are in Iran. They are in in the struggle. Uh, a lot of their activists have gone to jail. Uh, to, uh, in fact, Iran has uh, a few hundred uh, political prisoners. Um, so these are the two opposition. Now, uh, um, what I call the fake opposition uh, in, in the article that you mentioned are the groups that are outside Iran. And what they do is basically advocate what the Trump administration and his allies uh, in the Middle East, including Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, and Israel have been advocating for Iran. So basically what they do is uh, they have a lot of, uh, you know, uh, television stations, satellite television stations that broadcast programs into Iran. They have many, many websites. They are very active in uh, tweets and uh, Facebook pages and Instagram and so on. Uh, what they basically advocate is what Trump, uh, Pompeo, Bolton, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, Saudi Arabia, and so on, uh, advocate regarding Iran. In other words, they make uh, Iran uh, or Iran's political uh, system uh, an all-powerful evildoer, uh, the way George W. Bush used to put it, uh, and therefore justify whatever they want to do. Now, there is, of course, no question that Iranian government or Iranian uh, political establishment has done a lot of things, particularly inside Iran, uh, that are not desirable and it should be condemned, including violation of human rights, uh, violation of uh, rights of uh, ethnic and religious minorities, and so on. And of course, there is always uh, vast economic corruption. But we also know that at the same time that those in the Middle East that uh, advocate a tough line against Iran are themselves uh, violators of uh, human rights, are themselves active in, in wars and so on. Just take a look at, for example, Saudi Arabia. Uh, since almost four years ago, uh, you know, since March 29, 2015, we are uh, getting to the fourth anniversary of it, Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates, with the support of the United States, have been attacking a poor country like Yemen. Uh, and and uh, they have devastated the country. Uh, t tens of thousands of people have died. Several thousand children have died. And according to the United Nations, uh, 10 million people are uh, are in, da in danger of uh, um, dying of starvation. Uh, so when such a country uh, takes a hard line against Iran, uh, who sins, uh, why not negligible, doesn't even come close to what Saudi Arabia has done. Uh, 
uh, in that region. And when Iranian groups outside Iran uh, that are active in this advocate and support the same hard line that uh, Saudi Arabia, Israel, United Arab Emirates, and uh, Trump administration take against Iran, and then they basically have allied with the uh, Iranian uh, Iranian people enemies. At this at this stage, Saudi Arabia and uh, and and other countries in that region are enemies of Iranian people, as, as, at least as far as I'm concerned. And therefore, uh, allying yourself with them and advocating their lines against uh, Iran is nothing uh, uh, short of. Uh, being uh, a fake opposition. They are not opposition. In fact, they are lobbies for, for, for these countries. And that's, that was the main point that I discussed in that, in that article that you mentioned. So the true opposition, they're an organic opposition that doesn't have any outside influence. And then the fake opposition is they're subjugated to foreign influences. Um, do they have any support in Iran at all? That's the point. Uh, time and again, uh, it has been demonstrated that they don't have any significant uh, uh, social base of support in Iran. In Iran, we have regular elections. We have elections for Iranian president. We have elections for the parliament. We have elections for city council. These elections are not democratic because the establishment does not allow uh, everybody that wants to run uh, actually run. They vet the candidates. However, these elections have always been, <clears throat> excuse me, competitive and meaningful. They are meaningful in the sense that there is real competition of views among those that are that run, and that, um, they are also they are also competitive because you cannot ever predict the outcome of the election. Uh, there is always fierce uh, debate in the Iranian parliament. Uh, there is always harsh criticism of various factions, both against the government and against each other and so on. Now, on every occasion when these national elections are held, these fake opposition groups have called on Iranian people to boycott the election. And in each and every case, they have failed. For example, the, the last presidential elections that Iran had was in May of 2017. And the opposition did, it, the fake opposition did its best to convince Iranian people not to vote. And yet 75% of Iranian people voted uh, in that election. Uh, they also, for example, called for demonstrations uh, in late December and early January, just about a month and a half ago. Uh, and nobody showed up for demonstrations uh, who, uh, that they had called for. So time and again, it has been shown that they don't have any uh, uh, social base of support. And the reason, the main reason for it is that, first of all, Iranian people usually do not uh, trust those that are outside Iran uh, and from exile call on them uh, you know, to take actions to do this or that. Uh, because they, they feel that while they are living in Iran and there are very difficult economic conditions, partly because of the corruption in the system and partly because of the harsh economic sanctions that the United States uh, has imposed on them, uh, these people uh, li live in exile. They have more or less a comfortable life. And then uh, they ask Iranian inside Iran to make sacrifices 
so that someday they can go back to Iran and get to power. The other reason is that uh, Iran's contemporary history is uh, replete with foreign interventions. Um, and for example, we all know that in 1953, Iran had a democratic elected government led by Prime Minister Dr. Mohammad Mossadegh. And because Mossadegh had uh, nationalized Iranian oil industry, and there was a coup against its uh, against his government, led by the CIA and the British MI6, that overthrew Dr. Mossadegh's government and uh, put back in power uh, Mohammad Reza Shah, the last king of Iran before the Iranian Revolution, that had fled the country, and that brought about 25 years of uh, dictatorship by the Shah. That led to um, uh, to the revolution of 1979. So. In, in, in general, Iranian people inside the country do not trust those that are outside and call on them to make sacrifices while they have uh, you know, more or less comfortable life in the West. So uh, they don't have any social base of support. And as I said, this has been demonstrated time and again um, over the past many, many years. So this fake opposition they're trying. Are they trying to like recreate or reincarnate the 1953 coup? Coup? Uh, no. I mean, they are not a state opposition. Uh, uh, it's not clear to me what you mean by a state opposition. They are. Uh, they are political groups that are inside Iran. I mean, Iran has many, many political groups from left to right, from conservative to relatively liberal. Uh, uh, and so there are all sorts of groups that are active. What they are trying to do is to first and foremost get the uh, the uh, uh, hardliners to actually implement the constitution that Iran currently has without any exceptions. Because one of the charges that opposition group inside Iran make, and uh, it is also and is the charges are is actually uh, true is that a lot of things that the hardliners do in Iran uh, are against the constitution that the country has. So their first demand is to put into effect uh, the uh, esprit and letter of the of the constitution. Once that is done, then they 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 want for free elections in the in the sense that no candidate should be vetted. Uh, anybody who is willing to uh, run should be allowed to run, and then the third uh, demand is that once they run and once their elections uh, are held, the results of the elections should also be respected in the sense that whoever wins uh, the elections should be able to implement uh, their program. So once these steps are taken, then uh, of course we we should also have the free press so that the press can debate all these issues, report on corruption, uh, report on uh, excessive use of power, and so on. And also political prisoners are released. And uh, as I said, Iran has several hundred political prisoners. Then uh, a national debate can, can begin about uh, how to uh, revise the constitution. Um, many, uh, almost, or, or I shouldn't say almost, all democratic groups in Iran believe that Iranian constitution needs revisions uh, because it has concentrated a lot of power in the hands of the supreme leader 
And while the Iranian president is directly elected by the people and has to run the country on a day-to-day basis, uh, the supreme leader uh, has a lot of power and a lot of times it abuses that power in favor of the hardliners and against uh, the more liberal and democratic groups. So they think that the constitution should be uh, revised and at least at the first step, uh, the power of the supreme leader uh, should be drastically reduced so that the elected representative of the people uh, can, uh, can do what people elected them to do in the first place. Uh, and of course, ultimately, uh, we need to completely remove the position of supreme leader from the, from the uh, Iranian power hierarchy so that Iran uh, becomes uh, a complete democratic system. The other problem that a lot of people have, including myself, and the, uh, this has been uh, also expressed by the Iranian people time and again, is the fact that uh, over the past 40 years since the Iranian revolution, uh, the, the, the political system has been basically a, a religious government, one that uh, one in which uh, Islam has played a, a fundamental role. And that experience has been a, a total failure. So what people want is to separate church and state, separate uh, Islam and the government so that the government and the political system is completely uh, secular and democratic. Of course, we all, we all know that, for example, in Western European countries, or even in this country, uh, in Western European countries, for example, we know Christian Democrats uh, are, are very powerful uh, political parties, and they always participate uh, in the democratic process. But even those uh, political uh, parties, Christian Democrats and, and similar groups agree that if they are elected and uh, get to power, and uh, they run the country on, uh, on, on a secular basis. We also know that in this country, United States, religious groups are very active, and in fact, they are very influential within the Republican Party. So the question is not whether uh, religious groups or political groups uh, should be active in politics. The question is, uh, to separate church and state so that even if a religious group uh, gets uh, elected to run the country, uh, it, should, it should accept that the, the country should be run based on uh, uh, a uh, secular state so that uh, no religious group has any special rights or special uh, advantages over or, or over any other group. So these are basically the demands that all the uh, groups within Iran that have been involved in this struggle over the past uh, two, three decades uh, want. Uh, and uh, they have been involved in it uh, for a long time, as I said, and uh, we have had uh, demonstrations. Uh, for example, in uh, 2009, when the presidential elections were held, uh, people widely believe that there was fraud so that the establishment candidate, uh, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, can be re-elected. And therefore, we had what we call the Green Movement, uh, which was a, basically a, a civil movement, uh, uh, very peaceful and, uh, and uh, a broad-based uh, coalition of people against the fraud in the elections. Uh, we have had other uh, 
cases of uh, demonstrations. We had last year uh, demonstrations against uh, bad economic conditions, uh, which, as I said, uh, are basically caused by two, uh, two factors. One is corruption within the system, which is basically the result of uh, you know, hardline uh, holding most of the power. And the other reason is, of course, the external pressure, economic sanctions by the United States, and so on. After nuclear agreement was signed between Iran and the United States and uh, uh, five other countries, the five permanent uh, members of the United Nations Security Council plus Germany, uh, and President Obama lifted some of the American sanctions on Iran, Iran's economy started to grow. And in fact, it had very good uh, uh, rate of growth in 2016 and 2017. Uh, according to World Bank, Iran's economy grew by almost 6%. But then uh, President Trump came to power and announced that he's going to uh, leave uh, the nuclear agreement and reimpose the economic sanctions. And that uh, forced a lot of uh, European corporations that had uh, signed large agreements with, with Iran in order to invest in Iran and help grow the economy, uh, withdrew from their agreements with Iran, and therefore the economy is in, uh, in, in very bad shape. So there has been a lot of uh, uh, protests against this. And of course, uh, when people see that in addition to the sanctions, uh, uh, there is a lot of corruption within their state, and uh, you know some people have had uh, special advantages over, over the rest, and have, and have accumulated vast wealth while uh, a large fraction of the country uh, is in bad economic conditions, uh, then naturally there would be demonstrations. And indeed, we have had uh, demonstrations against the uh, corruptions and uh, against the bad state of economy. So do you think these foundations, uh, specifically a foundation like the new Iran Foundation, which you mentioned in your article, do you think they've been a reason why there's been a policy shift from Obama to Trump towards Iran? Well, we have, first of all, we have to look at uh, within the administration. Uh, John Bolton, the national security ad, uh, advisor to President Trump, uh, has been advocating uh, military attacks on Iran for many, many years, even before he was appointed uh, national security advisor. He had, he had always uh, advocated uh, attacking Iran. In 19, um, in, sorry, in 2015, right before the nuclear agreement between Iran and five plus one countries uh, was signed, he published uh, an op-ed uh, in the New York Times in which uh, he said, to prevent Iran bomb, bomb Iran. Uh, so he wanted Iran to be uh, bombarded. Just a couple of days ago, he, he still uh, claimed his erroneous, uh, repeated his erroneous claim that Iranian leaders uh, want to uh, uh, produce a nuclear weapon. And this is why International Atomic Energy Agency uh, has reported every three months since the uh, signing of the nuclear agreement that Iran has abided by its uh, obligation uh, towards the agreement. Even though the United States has left the agreement, Iran has stayed in the agreement and has abided by its obligation. Then um, Bolton has always uh, has always been for a long time a, a lobbyist, basically, for uh, one of the exile groups, uh, the MEK or the Mujahideen Khalq, 
and he has received, according to many documents, he has received uh, you know large fees for you know acting as their lobby. He has given speeches in their gatherings. He has advocated their their line and and so on. So that's the national security advisor to the president. Then we have Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who, when he was uh, a congressman from Kansas, uh, advocated that Iran should be uh, bombed uh, 2,000 times. He he mentioned 2030s, uh, so that all the Iranian nuclear uh, facilities and uh, military installations and so on uh, can be completely destroyed. And he said that this is not difficult to do. We should easily be able to do that. Uh, he's also uh, a, a basically a Christian fundamentalist that has a very dark view of uh, what he calls a struggle between uh, Christianity or Western uh, Western nations uh, with what he, ca- what he calls a radical Islam. So that's uh, our Secretary of State. There are other, of course, uh, other uh, administration officials and that have uh, the same uh, point of view. And of course, we have Jared Kushner, the president's uh, son-in-law, uh, who is, of course, uh, 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 ardent support of Israel. We also have people like uh, Sheldon Adelson, uh, the uh, casino magnate uh, that owns uh, billions of dollars worth of casino and, uh, in Las Vegas and elsewhere. And he has been a big contributor to Trump campaign for president. And he has a hard line uh, towards Iran. In fact, he suggested uh, before the signing of nuclear agreement with Iran in 2015, he suggested that uh, the United States should drop a nuclear bomb in uh, central Iran and issue a warning to Iran that if it doesn't stop its peaceful nuclear program, the next bomb will be dropped uh, on Tehran, uh, the capital of Iran, uh, whose population is about 14 million. So when you have these people that are either within the administration or outside the administration, but support the president and his administration, um, then you can see why such a uh, hardline policy towards Iran emerges. Now, a new foundation, the new Iran Foundation that you mentioned, uh, if you look at, for example, its uh, board of directors, this is also basically consists of people who have hardline towards Iran, take hard on towards Iran. Uh, that I have explained in the article that you mentioned. Uh, and of course, MEK, the Mujahideen Khakh, that I said Bolton is a, uh, a, a lobbyist for them, uh, also has a very uh, extensive uh, lobbying operation in, Iran, uh, in the United States. Many, many politicians have acted as the lobbyists. They have been paid very handsomely. These are all documented, uh, available on the internet. So we have all these groups, uh, supposedly Iranian groups, but they advocate the same hard line uh, that Trump and his administration have towards Iran. And at the same time, we have uh, you know, Iran's, uh, Iran hawks within the administration, like Pompeo and Bolton and so on. And then in the Senate, we also have uh, Iran hardliners uh, or Iran hawks, uh, Senator Tom Cotton, for example, from Arkansas. Uh, he's uh, an Iran hog. Uh, uh, we have Lindsey Graham of uh, South Carolina. He has been always uh, uh, an Iran hog. We have Robert Menendez of, of New Jersey. Um, he has been a hardliner. Chuck Schumer of New York. 
they all have been uh, hard on Iran uh, hawk, and therefore, you know, there is harmony when it comes to Iran between uh, the administration and uh, Senate and political activists and so on. So that's that's why we get ourselves into the situation that we are in right now. Yeah, unfortunately, they use the pretext of radical Islam because it sounds scary enough where it can't be reasoned enough, reasoned with, and it's ingrained. I'm going to say it's ingrained, especially in the Republican Party, but overall, it's pretty bipartisan. Yes. Mm-hmm. What would you say? Oh, go ahead. No, it has been ingrained in Iranian, uh, in American politics. I mean, uh, 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 if you look at the past uh, uh, almost 40 years, ever since the hostage crisis of 1979, uh, being anti-Iran and taking hard positions towards Iran has always been uh, uh, a staple of, of uh, American politics. Uh, anybody who wants to talk about foreign policy uh, and wants to support of uh, you know various groups in the United States uh, takes a hard line towards Iran. Uh, and of course, uh, we all know why that is, because uh, Israel lobby in the United States is very powerful. Uh, Saudi Arabia uh, also has a very powerful lobby in the United States. That's also against Iran. Um, and the new actors, such as the United Arab Emirates and so on, they are also uh, very active uh, in the anti-Iran uh, uh, crowd. So this has always been ingrained in you know, American politics almost ever since the Iranian Revolution of 1979. Yeah, and unfortunately, whenever you say something or question that narrative, you're labeled as an Iranian apologist. At least that's what I've heard from myself, or I've gotten labeled that before. Yes, yes. But uh, uh, the, the, the problem with such a view is that uh, these people have a sort of a binary view. It is the view that George W. Bush had uh, after uh, September 11, uh, 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 2001 terrorist attacks. He said that you're either with us or with the terrorists. Uh, no, there is, uh, there is a third element here. Uh, we are against the terrorists. We are also against adventurous policies that actually feed these terrorism. It's the same thing with Iran. Uh, it is not, uh, there are not just two sides, one the Iranian government or political establishment and one uh, the United States establishment. The third element uh, is the Iranian people. Uh, Iranian people oppose uh, the vast uh, portion of the policies of the ruling group in Iran, but they also oppose intervention in their, in their internal affairs. They also oppose sanctions uh, that hurt only ordinary people. These sanctions that the United States has imposed on Iran basically um, uh, is targeted at ordinary people. It doesn't weaken the hardliners. In fact, if anything, uh, it makes them uh, more powerful. It, It makes them stronger. And while in the previous administration, this was always denied, in the current administration, this is this is not even denied. Uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo had uh, an interview just this past Sunday with CBS in which he said that, yes, the economic sanctions that we have imposed, uh, you know, 
have made uh, Iranian people condition uh, worse. They are in much worse conditions. So we are we are confident that if this uh, you know conditions continue, they will rise up against the government. So they have basically targeted ordinary Iranians with the illusion that these uh, you know worsening economic condition would force them to rise up against uh, the government in Iran and basically topple the government. Uh, now, if there were no outside intervention, and if Iran were not in a chaotic region like Middle East, where there is war and destruction and bloodshed everywhere, from Afghanistan to Iraq to Syria to Yemen uh, to North Africa and so on, uh, Iranian people may have uh, tried to do uh, such a thing, may have tried uh, to rise up and, and try to uh, get rid of uh, their government. But as long as, uh, you know, the Middle East is in the conditions that it is, Iranian people don't want Iran to become another Syria. Iranian people don't want Iran to become another Afghanistan or Iraq or Yemen. Or, or Libya, or or any of these countries in which war is going on. So they are wise enough uh, not to do that. They are wise enough uh, to, while protesting uh, the bad economic conditions due to the corruptions that exist uh, in the Iranian system, they are also aware, very well aware, of the effect of the tough economic sanctions against Iran. Um, on the anniversary of Iranian revolution, um, just this past Tuesday, uh, the president had this tweet about uh, Iranian uh, revolution, and you know he attacked uh, 40 years of uh, Iranian revolution, and he used this picture uh, that a photographer within Iran had taken of uh, some of these protests within Iran, um, and he used that in his tweet. Uh, that photographer lives in Iran, and he immediately, uh, she immediately responded to that, protested the president uh, uh, about using that picture, and said that uh, while, you are, while you have imposed economic sanctions on us, while you are hurting us with, with what you do, while you always you know, advocate a tough line against us, and while I see our people uh, are, are suffering because of your policy, uh, you can't use the pictures that I took in your tweet against us. And there is this other um, uh, uh, political activist and political uh, prisoner in Iran. Uh, uh, he's in he's in in jail right now, and he uh, issued uh, this statement uh, that you know activists uh, you know spread it over the internet and uh, and, and you know uh, cyberspace. He said that while he was in jail, he read that the State Department in Washington. Uh, demanded his release uh, from jail. And he said that uh, Trump, Pompeo, and Bolton, and people like that should shed crocodile tears uh, elsewhere. Iranian people don't need their crocodile tears. Uh, they have been, uh, they have imposed sanctions on Iran. They have made uh, the lives of ordinary Iranian very miserable. They are constantly threatening Iran. They, you know, try to ignite people like Bolton and Pompeo try to ignite the war with Iran. And at the same time, uh, they express uh, you know, sympathy for, for, for Iranian people, which is nothing but uh, crocodile tears. Uh, 
So that's that's the state that we are in. This is not you are either with them or with us. There is a third element here, and that's the Iranian people. The Iranian people oppose, uh, you know, the system that is there. They want a better system, a more representative system, a more democratic system. But they also uh, oppose intervention by the United States and its allies in Iran internal affairs, the tough sanctions, the threat of military attacks, and so on. So uh, the narrative that these people advocate that, you know, if you express such facts, uh, and these are all documented facts, then you are an apologist for the, uh, for, for the Islamic Republic, has no basis in reality. This is just propaganda. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. It's crazy. And the, the statement or the belief that economic sanctions that harm the civilian population will help facilitate some type of positive regime change. I think people who endorse that opinion, I think they need either are just bold face lying or if they believe it, they need to have their their head examined. It's such an insane statement. And we've had so many examples throughout history when those economic sanctions just create a lot more ill will than positive change. Do you think that is is there a way for America or maybe even the average American or anyone in the Western world to support true opposition groups in Iran? Or would all that just be counterproductive because it, it would be seen by the Iranian public as just working with the U.S.? Well, I mean, there are uh, uh, anti-war groups in the United States, progressive people those who oppose intervention in other people's affairs are well aware of what's going on uh, uh, you know, regarding Iran. Uh, there is no question that the, uh, that the uh, uh, Iranian political system or the Iranian ruling group uh, has done um, a lot of things that, um, that are opposed by uh, um, US political system. And one can uh, reasonably uh, judge them as not very helpful. 
but there are far worse actors uh, in that region than, than 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 Iran. Absolutely. For example, we all know we all know that Saudi Arabia uh, has been, you know, one of the biggest supporters of terrorism. Uh, this is what uh, you know. Even American uh, politicians, uh, highest officials, uh, have acknowledged. Uh, during the during in, in 2015, when Hillary Clinton was getting ready to run for president, uh, in in, uh, in her uh, emails to John Podesta, uh, you know the the Clinton's uh, uh, close aide said that we know Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates and Qatar uh, so, uh, support uh, ISIS and other terrorist groups. So what we need to do is to pressure them to stop this. Uh, uh, Joe Biden, uh, President Obama's vice president, in a speech in October of uh, uh, 2014 at Harvard University, uh, said explicitly that when this uh, the war in Syria, uh, the civil war in Syria started, our allies, which he named Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Turkey, and Qatar, uh, said that whoever fights with the Assad government uh, that is in power in Syria will be funded, trained, and supported um, by these four countries. And then he continued saying that, unfortunately, the only ones uh, uh, who, who were fighting or who are fighting with the Assad government are the terrorists, uh, the Al-Qaeda Al 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 branch in uh, Syria, which is called Jabhat al-Nusra, uh, and other uh, radical Islamic groups. Uh, so he acknowledged that our allies support these terrorist groups, and yet uh, it is Iran that is always labeled as the biggest supporters of terrorism. Uh, 15 out of 19 terrorists that attacked the United States on September 11, 2001, were Saudi uh, citizens. Yet the ban on Muslims coming uh, into this country doesn't include Saudi Arabia, but includes Iran. So there's, there's always this distortion about what Iran has done and what Iran hasn't done. Yes, Iran has uh, a political system that hasn't been good to the Iranian people uh, in a variety of case, uh, in, in, in a variety of situations and for a variety of reasons. But even if you consider that uh, political system, with all of its shortcomings, with all of the things that it has done, and compared with what we have in Saudi Arabia, Iran's political system is far better than whatever Saudi Arabia uh, and its citizens have. As I said, in Iran, we have regular elections, which are uh, not democratic by at least Western standards. They are meaningful and competitive, and they have consequences. In Saudi Arabia, we, we never have elections. They made a big deal last year about how Saudi Arabia allows women to drive now and how uh, Saudi citizens now have open movie theaters. In Iran, Iranian women have been voting for 60 years. Iranian women are present everywhere. 63% of all Iranian uh, college students are women, and we have Iranian mayors, Iranian ambassadors, Iranian uh, politicians, uh, attorneys, university professors, all female, female uh, you know, politicians, and so on and so forth. 
So they make a big deal about, you know, a very tiny uh, change in the Saudi Arabia, uh, uh, you know, system. And while at the same time, uh, while they say that, oh, you know, uh, Saudi Arabian women now have the right to drive, and so that means that the uh, you know, political system is opening up. At the same time, the Saudi Arabian government has been uh, arresting uh, women uh, rights activists, and several of them are actually in jail right now. That even the Trump administration has called on the Saudi government to release them. Uh, at the same time, for example, nothing is said about the discrimination and all sorts of economic pressure that Saudi Arabia government uh, imposes against its own citizens, particularly the Shiite minority that lives in Eastern Saudi Arabia and constitutes about 15% of the population. These are all, you know, uh, hidden here. They don't talk about it. Uh, whereas if we make a comparison between those countries and those governments that we support uh, directly or indirectly with our tax money and other things, like Saudi Arabia, like United Arab Emirates, like Bahrain, your, or like Egypt, and so on, and compare them with what we have in Iran, Iran is way ahead of them. And yet, Iran is you know, the targeted country. Iran is a country that uh, behind everything that uh, bad that has happened in the Middle East, uh, whereas it was us that invaded Afghanistan, it was us that invaded uh, Iraq, it, it is us that supports the genocidal war of Saudi Arabia and Yemen. It is us that supported the coup in Egypt that brought a military dictatorship that has 60,000 political prisoners in Egypt. It was us that attacked Libya, and it was us that intervened in Syria, and it is us that intervened in, in Lebanon. And yet, everything bad that, ha that is happening in that region is because of Iran. This just does not agree with the reality of the situation. And yet, uh, here we are in this uh, very uh, unfortunate and complicated situation. And when Iran comes into another country, like, for example, Syria, they were invited into Syria. Is that correct? Of course. I mean, Iran and Syria uh, signed a defensive pact in 2006 according to which if any of the country is attacked by another country, the other side has to come to uh, its aid. So Iran was obligated uh, to, to aid the, uh, the Syrian government. Now, I don't advocate intervention in Syria, but what I'm saying is once we admit, uh, according to uh, Vice President Joe Biden, that it was our allies, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, United Arab Emirates, and Turkey, plus Israel and so on, because Israel is also involved in uh, Syrian war. Once they internationalized the war in Syria, which didn't have to be that, and in fact, I think if they hadn't internationalized, there would either not be a war in Syria, or if, even if there were, it would have ended very quickly. But once they internationalized the war in Syria, then nobody can blame Russia or Iran to come to assist uh, their allies. Uh, Syria also has a friendship pact with, with Russia, according to which Russia is supposed to help the Syrian government. 
There is no question that hundreds of thousands of innocent people in Syria have been killed uh, over the past eight, eight years. And there is no question that the Syrian army has committed a lot of war crimes. But the Syrian army is not the only party to, in this terrible war that has committed crimes. Most of the crimes ha have been committed by the terrorist groups that have been, that have been supported by outside uh, uh, powers. They always talked about, for a long time, they always talked about moderate uh, Syrian opposition. There was no such moderate Syrian opposition. As uh, Joe Biden said, the only ones that are fighting with the Assad governments are the terrorists. And these terrorists are supported by our allies. I mean, the, 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 a speech exists, just put it on, in Google and, and in YouTube, and you will find it. And in fact, he was forced to apologize uh, for saying that, which a foreign policy website said he was forced to apologize because uh, you know he expressed the truth. So this is a situation, but we are never told that. Look, this is what we have done. You now John Kerry, in 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 a uh, in a conversation that had with some of these opposition leaders, uh, Syrian opposition leaders, in September of 2015, uh, told them that uh, the reason. Russia and Iran intervened in Syria was that because the Syrian government was on the verge of collapse, and if, if it had collapsed, um, you know, a radical Islamic group, you know, ISIS, uh, would have taken power uh, in Syria, and both Iran and uh, Russia uh, considered that, consider that as a threat to their national security, which is, which is true. Because a lot of these, for example, terrorist groups that fight, that fought in Syria, were Russian Chechens that had that moved from, um, you know, the Muslim part of Russia uh, to Syria to fight with 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 uh, with, the, with the Syrian government, and and ISIS has always been uh, a bloody enemy of Iran and and, and and Shiites in Iraq and elsewhere. In fact, they uh, you know they carried out a terrorist attacks in Iran several months ago in a uh, southern city of Ahwaz in province of Khuzestan in southern Iran. So even Joe Biden admitted that, uh, John Kerry admitted that, you know, that was the reason for intervention. Uh, and yet we are never told these things. Uh, the mainstream media never expresses these facts. The mainstream uh, media never says, you know, what we have done. Uh, and um, I should give credit to the president, President Trump, that has always said that we have spent $7 trillion in the Middle East and we got nothing in return. And this is actually true. And I, I give credit uh, to him for, for, for saying that. Uh, you know, he recognizes the problem. He recognizes that these problems started when we invaded Iraq on false pretense based on lies. He recognizes the fact that we shouldn't have attacked Libya. He recognizes that we shouldn't have intervened in Syria. The president said many, many times the war in Syria is not our war. And he orders uh, U.S. troops to leave Syria. But his secretary of state and his um, national security advisor, and even James Mattis, the former defense secretary, opposed it. And they tried to slow it down. And they tried to put all sorts of conditions to it. So this is the situation we are in. But the mainstream media never discusses such such important facts 
Uh, they never tell people the truth about what's going on. And at the same time, they always make a very distorted, unreal image of Iran as the main evildoer in the Middle East. And not only do they not tell the facts, the mainstream media is guilty of associating all these different groups into one. So whenever they report, so when, for example, when Trump announced that um, he wanted to leave Syria, networks like CNN and MSNBC, they said that by leaving Syria, we would be empowering both ISIS, Iran, Iran, and Russia. How is that possible when Syria and Iran and Russia are fighting ISIS? Like, it's just so ridiculous. Yes, I mean, they don't, the fact of the matter is both Russia and Iran played a fundamental role in defeating ISIS. Uh, if in, in June of 2014, when ISIS all of a sudden came to prominence and uh, took over, um, you know, large part of Western Iraq and North uh, East part of Syria, if it weren't for Iran's help to the Iraqi government, Baghdad, the capital of Iraq, would have uh, fallen uh, under control of, uh, of ISIS. Even the Pentagon uh, in the past uh, has admitted that if it were for Iran's help, uh, the, uh, the Iraqi government in Baghdad would have collapsed in June of 2014. It was Iran and then uh, Iran and Russia in, in Syria that, that prevented uh, victory by terrorist groups and ISIS. And yet, uh, nothing of that sort is, 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 is said here. The only thing that they say is that you know, Iran and Russia are present in Syria. Yes, they shouldn't be there. I totally agree. We should follow a non-intervention policy. But this non-intervention policy should be applicable to everybody. Nobody should have intervened in Syria. No country should have invaded Iraq. No country should have attacked Libya. No country should have invaded Afghanistan. We have been in Afghanistan for almost 18 years now. And what have, have we got? Tens of thousands of Afghanis have, have, have died. Uh, the Taliban are probably more powerful than they were 17, 18 years ago, to the extent that now the Trump administration has been forced to actually negotiate with Taliban about uh, you know, leaving uh, Afghanistan. And all of this has created a lot of resentments against the United States and what it has done uh, in that part of the world. Whereas uh, that $7 trillion that the president has always regretted that they spent in the Middle East and got nothing uh, in return, if a, a fraction of it, let's say a trillion of it, or less than a trillion of it, had been spent on repairing and fixing uh, uh, the infrastructure in this country, it would have done wonders. It would have uh, created hundreds of thousands of good paying jobs. Uh, it would have fixed the infrastructure of this country that is collapsing. Another part of it could have been spent on you know, helping the, the poor people, the needy people, and so on. And at the same time, it would have uh, created a lot of goodwill uh, in the people of that region towards the United States if some of that money that we wasted on war uh, had been given to them as you know, so, some sort of uh, economic aid package 
so that they could uh, they could grow their own economy and stand on their own feet, and there would not have been any any enmity between the people of this country and that country. But yet, um, those who want war, uh, who want a permanent state of war, uh, you know, people like John Bolton, uh, they always pursue this. They always advocate war with Iran. They advocate war with North Korea. Uh, they, you know, it is as if you know. Uh, we say, uh, you know, what what we say, and it should go what we say. Uh, whatever we say, it should go. Uh, and that's why we are in the situation that we are in right now. So I got one more question for you, and I'm going to let you go. So we had the Poland summit. Um, I think it ended yesterday, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and it seemed to be an attempt to, I guess, solidify a global anti-Iran coalition um, do you think, what's your take on that? I mean, was there any success in doing that? No, it failed because, uh, for, uh, first of all, uh, major allies of the United States, uh, you know, Western European countries, uh, refused to participate, at least at the highest level. They sent probably some low-ranked diplomats just to be observers. Uh, they uh, repeated the same type of rhetoric that they always repeat, you know, Iran is that, this and Iran is that. Um, and um, they couldn't even agree on, you know, issuing uh, a statement at the end of the summit uh, to, you know, summarize what they had talked about. Uh, even uh, many Arab states, in fact, all of them uh, that are supposedly uh, a main part of this anti-Iran coalition uh, didn't send their, uh, you know, high officials uh, uh, to the summit. The only head of a state that participated in the summit was uh, Benjamin Netanyahu of, of Israel. Uh, Mike Pompeo participated and Vice President uh, Mike Pence also participated. But that was it. And in fact, if you look at the picture uh, of the, all the participants in the conference that they uh, that they published, uh, you practically don't recognize anybody except uh, for Netanyahu, Pompeo, and Bolton, because all of the countries that did participate uh, didn't really send any uh, important or high-ranking officials. Uh, uh, and, you know, it was just basically like a show, uh, you know, show of, uh, you know, a group of countries. Uh, most of them are not even uh, important players in the international arena. Uh, went there just to please the Trump administration, uh, went there and they repeated uh, whatever they repeated. Uh, and while uh, the summit was going on, there was this terrorist attack in southeastern Iran. Uh, they attacked, uh, you know, a military convoy uh, uh, and killed about uh, 40 people. And these uh, terrorists that staged these attacks are widely believed to be supported by uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, when uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia says explicitly that we want to have a war with Iran and we want to take the war inside Iran, and then obviously when uh, such terrorist attacks um, take place in Iran, even if it is not, uh, if, even if they are not supported by Saudi Arabia, and there is this suspicion that they are indeed supported by Saudi Arabia, and in fact in this particular case uh, they are widely believed. Uh, to be supported by Saudi Arabia. And there is a whole history uh, about the support of these groups um, by Saudi Arabia. 
And in fact, I have published at least a couple of articles about this, uh, about the whole history, long history of, of, of support by uh, Sunni Arab countries for, for these terrorist groups. So that was basically what happened in Poland, um, as, at least as far as I can, I can see, or uh, at least as far as I can understand, uh, nothing came out of it, uh, except the same rhetoric as always uh, against Iran and, you know, a, a show by Benjamin Netanyahu and his Arab allies. Mohammed, where can we uh, where can we follow you? Where's uh, I, the article that you publishes on the low blog? But where else can we follow you? I have published a large number of articles on Huffington Post. I have published uh, on National Interest a large number of articles there. I regularly uh, contribute to antiwar.com. Uh, I publish my articles there. Uh, I also have a very active Facebook page. If they just uh, put my name, Mohammed Sami, on Facebook. They will immediately find it. Uh, so I'm I'm active in many many uh, in many many uh, media, uh, and uh, I have published other places. I've published in uh, Truth Dig. I have published in Truth Out uh, website. These websites, uh, and uh, I have published many many places. Uh, and my latest article that you mentioned was published by Low Blog, and I intend to publish more in Low Blog and continue to contribute to antiwar.com. All right, excellent. Uh, Mohammed Sahimi, thank you so much for joining us today. This is this was great. I think that article that you and your work is very, very important, and uh, hopefully we can do this again soon sometime. Uh, thank you once again for having me on your program, and I'll be happy to uh, come back to your program. Hey, it's me again. It's Henry asking you to rate and review the podcast and also go on YouTube and subscribe to the channel. Um, Very helpful if you guys do that. And uh, I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Peace. And that totally was my chair. It wasn't a fart. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts.